invite you to turn in a Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, where we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. During these weeks of Advent, we have been focused on the theme of Jesus, joy of every longing heart. And we've been talking about some of the longings of our heart, and we've seen how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We have talked about from Genesis 49 and the benediction over the life of Judah that Jesus is the righteous ruler, the one that we were longing for to come and rule and reign in our lives and in this world. And we've seen from Isaiah 7 that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And today we're looking at Isaiah 9 to see that Jesus is the light that has come into a dark world, a world darkened by sin. And so as we think about darkness and gloom, which these verses in Isaiah speak about. You may have seen recently in the news that Columbus made the top 10 list. Columbus, Ohio was number seven in the country in gloominess. (laughs) Columbus is the seventh most gloomy city in the country and it's based on rain and cloud cover and days of cloudy days and that's what that's all about. But we don't for the most part, like gloom. We prefer light, we prefer bright, we prefer joy. And so God's word in Isaiah 9 is a relevant word to our lives this day. I invite you to hear now God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The people in Isaiah's day were familiar with darkness, they were familiar with gloom, they were familiar with the devastation of the darkness. King Ahaz in Judah, the southern kingdom, had sought help from a neighboring power, Assyria, because his brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel had aligned themselves with Syria a little bit farther to the north, and Syria and Israel together were coming against Judah, the southern kingdom, They wanted to 
either take over or to ally themselves with Judah against Assyria farther to the east. But Ahaz, instead of trusting God, decided that he would put his trust in Assyria. And so he was leaning on a foreign power for help. The root of the problem, the root of this darkness in that day was unbelief, just as it is in our day. Unbelief, lack of faith, lack of trust or reliance upon God is the root of our problem. And so in Isaiah 7, 9, it says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so Ahaz was not trusting the Lord, his God, to deliver and to protect him. And instead, he went to lean on Assyria. And instead of crying out to the Lord for wisdom, he and the people were seeking direction and wisdom from mediums, from psychics, basically, from necromancers, people who would communicate with the dead. And in Isaiah 8.19, it says, Should not a people inquire of their God? So instead of inquiring of their own God, the one true God, they were looking for wisdom. They were looking for counsel in other places. They were looking for might and power from Assyria rather than the mighty God. There was darkness, there was gloom in those days, and there's darkness in our day. We don't have to look far. We see it all around us in various ways. And we tend to try to hide in the darkness when we know that we're doing something wrong. We seek out some place we think no one will see us, or we seek out a dark place. It's not surprising that many of the places where people meet to take part in sin they're dark places, physically dark. They have the lights down low because people don't want to be seen doing some of the things that we do. There's a strange thing about shame. We can get caught up in different aspects of shame and we'll feel shame for one thing but not for another. I have dealt with people who are struggling with addiction of different kind and on occasion I've had people vehemently deny to my face any kind of addiction to street type of drugs like cocaine because apparently there was some stigma with that they were willing to acknowledge dependence unhealthy dependence upon alcohol but no no I'm not doing cocaine or crack or meth or any of that kind of stuff because there was some stigma there so others flip it around the other way they're willing to admit that they're addicted to prescription pain medications, but now alcohol, I don't have a problem with that. And yet you see them devour a six-pack or a case of beer in a matter of a few hours or less. So there's strange things about shame. We try to hide in the darkness and cover the things where we feel shame. And there's moral and spiritual darkness. We don't have to look very far to see this. If you've followed the news recently, you may know that there's a, a new video game called I Am Jesus Christ. And in that game, you have the opportunity to experience what it's like to be crucified. And you have the opportunity to battle Satan. There's a new movie being released by a streaming video service that uh, suggests or portrays Jesus as a homosexual man searching for his boyfriend. 
There is moral and spiritual darkness in this world all around us. There's relational and political darkness, relational within our own families, within our own spheres of influence, where um, husbands and wives are in conflict, maybe separated, where uh, children and their parents or grandparents are experiencing conflict, brothers and sisters in Christ are not reconciled with one another. There's relational darkness. And that's in our personal realms, but then we spread that out to the world, to the nation, and we find it in political spheres as well. How much darker could we get politically with all the division and conflict in our current climate politically? There's physical darkness as well. People who experience chronic, acute pain. And it's so bad that they're maybe lying in a bed of pain, curled up in a fetal position, just crying out their pain. And it's a dark place sometimes where, where you feel like you just want to give up. There's financial darkness where we just can't see a way out of our current situation. How will things ever be any different? How will I get out of debt? How will I be able to pay these bills? And there's emotional darkness where we've perhaps experienced trauma, we've ex- experienced disappointment or hurt emotionally, and it causes us to be in such a dark place that we just want to withdraw and isolate ourselves. There's darkness all around us, and it's devastating. And so there is this longing for light. We don't like to be in darkness. We long for light. Now, I know in John 3 it says men love darkness because their deeds were evil, but For the majority of us, we long for light. We rejoice in a sunrise. We rejoice to see the light of day, a sunny day. And we long for light. The question is, what is light? When I was in seminary, just down the road from the seminary was Caltech University. And so we had these scientists, these physicists, and different brilliant people And they attended the church where I was doing my internship. And they were debating about the nature of light, whether it's particulate, whether it's made up of particles or waves or maybe something else. Well, I don't have a degree from Caltech, but I can tell you what the nature of light is. It's personal. It's personal because in 1 John 1, 5, it says God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So more than being particle or wave or some other scientific description, light is personal. God is light. That's who God is. It's not a characteristic about God. That's who God is. God is light. That's who God is in his person. He dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. And so God is light. We long for this kind of light. Jesus also said to his followers that you are the light of the world. So which is it? Is Jesus the light of the world or are you and I the light of the world? Well, it's both. There's no contradiction in scripture. But when Jesus says that you are the light of the world, it's derivative. We find light, and we reflect the light that he is, and we reflect, refract that light like a prism to other people so that they may see the glory of our great God. So we long for this light, and this light 
is a gift. And we see this light throughout Scripture from the very beginning at creation. What did God say? He said, let there be light. And there was light. Light is a good gift. It's the first thing God created. And at the incarnation, we see that the star of Bethlehem shone and the glory of God shone in the heavens. And at the baptism of Jesus, the spirit came like a dove and and in his transfiguration, his clothes became dazzling white. And at his crucifixion, although the land had darkness for three hours, the light could not be extinguished. And three days later, on the first day of the week at sunrise, the light shone again, and we see that Jesus is the light. And then the Bible talks about his second coming and says that it will be like lightning that shines from east to west. And when we think about heaven, there will be no need of lamp or sun because the Lord will be their light. This light that God brings is a gift. It's his gift of love to us because he doesn't want us to be in darkness, to be in gloom. He wants us to have the light of life. So we long for light, and when we long for light, we're really longing for God because God is light. And then we see this light described in a number of different terms in Isaiah chapter 9. And so the Messiah, Jesus, is a multifaceted gift. Now you might think in one way of Jesus as a Swiss army knife. You know, the kind that you have a pocket knife, you have a can opener, you have a toothpick, you have a screwdriver. And depending whether you get the little tiny one or the big one, you might have a whole bunch of other tools with it. But Jesus is multifaceted. When the Bible talks about the Messiah, we see him described in a variety of different terms. But in all of these terms, he is more than just a utilitarian gift. At Christmas time, when we give gifts to family members and loved ones, sometimes we give utilitarian gifts, right? Things that somebody needs that they, their life would be improved by or helped by. Maybe it's a, a can opener or something in the kitchen, a blender or something. Um, a number of years ago, prior to Christmas, this was a number of weeks before Christmas, I bought a new vacuum cleaner for our house. It was not a Christmas gift. It was not a gift for my wife, but she asked, is this a Christmas gift? I said, no, it is not, because I know what happens to husbands who give their wives vacuum cleaners for a Christmas gift. Recently in the news, there was a, a woman who um, received a Peloton training bicycle, stationary bike, and she was really thrilled with it. Her husband had given it to her, and she put something on social media about how much she was enjoying it and she had lost some weight and become more fit and she was thrilled. The rest of the world was not so much. One woman took her to task on, on social media and said, that's the kind of gift that a husband gives when he's trying to send a message to your wife that you need to get fit. You're, you've gained a little bit of weight here and that kind of gift is an insult, not a blessing. It's one of those utilitarian gifts. Jesus is more than a utilitarian gift. He meets our needs, yes. But when we talk about the best gifts, when you receive a gift that has really blessed you, you don't typically say, 
it's what I've always needed. You say it's what I've always wanted. There's a desire factor. Jesus not only meets our needs, he meets our desire. And so in verse 3 of Isaiah, we see that this gift of the Messiah brings joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. These images of, of abundance, that's what Jesus brings. He brings abundant life. He came to give life and life abundantly. So infinite joy is offered. And you've heard me quote on different occasions C.S. Lewis who says that we are like ignorant children content to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. God desires infinite joy for us and he offers it to us in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He offers freedom from oppressive burdens. It's promised there in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God takes those oppressive burdens that have been put upon us or that we've put upon ourselves and he breaks them off and he invites us instead to take on the yoke of Jesus, to come alongside Jesus by faith and allow Jesus to place his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And then we see that an end to war is foretold in Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, it talks about beating swords into plowshares and that there will be war no more. That's the hope when Jesus comes in his glory that there will be no more war. Now Jesus has come. We rejoice in his first advent because he has gone to war with our enemy, Satan, and he's defeated him, and yet we live in this tension between already and not yet. There is still a war going on. But one day, when Jesus returns, there will be no more war. Light is this great gift that God has given us, and I've found something very helpful in the writing of John Piper. He says, what's the main value of light? Negatively, it helps you avoid danger. Positively, it helps you reach what you're after. When you walk in the darkness, you may stumble over a log or step on a rattlesnake or fall off a cliff or hit your head on a low-hanging branch. Darkness is full of threat. It frustrates your ability to attain your goal, but light changes all that. It exposes dangers and frees you from their lurking power. It opens the way to your goal. It is full of hope and promises the glad attainment of your goal. But sometimes we're lurking around in the darkness and we reach out and we grab something and we think it feels soft and warm and there's danger lurking in the darkness. And so someone 
A man might go into a dark room, he feels a warm, soft fur with one hand and a cold, sharp edge with the other, and he draws in close to the warmth and softness of the fur. But when the light goes on, he sees that the warm, soft fur is the underbelly of a horrid, man-eating monster, and the hard, cold edge is the sword of the majestic Christ ready to save. The reason he was controlled by his desire for the man-eating monster is that he was in the dark. Everyone who loves the world more than God is in the dark. Only it's a willful darkness because as John said in John 3.19, the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When you walk in the darkness, you're controlled by the desires for the soft, warm underbellies of prestige and power and the two-second pleasures. This is the very opposite of what it means to have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God means that you, that you see things the way he sees them and have the same desire he has. If we're controlled by the desires for the world instead of desires for God, it doesn't matter whether we say we have fellowship with God. We do not. Instead, we walk in darkness. And so in the darkness, there's a danger of thinking that something that's soft and warm is something comfortable and good but it could be something very dangerous. And so Ahaz, in Isaiah's day, reached out to Assyria, thinking that was soft and warm and good, but he was turning his back on reliance on God. And when we grasp for things of the world rather than the light of Jesus Christ, we're doing the same. When we turn to medication or seeking to solve our problems with alcohol or pain medication or prescription drugs or street drugs, we are grabbing on to that man-eating monster rather than taking the sword of Jesus Christ to slay it. God offers light in the darkness and this light is the person of Jesus Christ who is the wonderful counselor. In Romans 11, after Paul the apostle searches the depths of election and God's plan in salvation, he comes to the end and says, who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. There is no one who is wise enough to counsel God. God has all wisdom. He is all-knowing. He knows and declares the end of things from the beginning. And so Jesus the Messiah is a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. Where Ahaz had looked to spiritual substitutes for wisdom, to mediums and necromancers, people who would communicate with the dead, God offers a wonderful counselor who is wise and all-knowing. Where Ahaz had leaned on the foreign power of Assyria, God offers himself, the mighty God, who's glorious in power, who's able to help us in our time of need, which is all the time. And then Messiah is referred to as everlasting father. Now that could be theologically troubling to some who value the doctrine of the Trinity, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when this passage refers to the Messiah as everlasting Father. It's not saying that Jesus is the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. 
Each person in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are distinct. What this passage is saying is that the Messiah, like a loving father, will protect his people, will provide for his people. So Jesus, the Messiah, is called everlasting father to show that he's the one who protects his people and provides for his people. You can trust him in your time of need. And finally, he's the prince of peace. He's the king that was promised on the throne of David and on in the line of Judah. He is the, the true King of kings and the Lord of lords who will rule in righteousness. And then we see a statement that catches me every time I read it, that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's not just that his government will not end or that peace will not end, but there will be ever-increasing rule and reign and ever-increasing peace. Now for some who are um, fans of smaller government, that may not seem like a good thing. You think, oh, more bureaucracy, more government, that sounds like a bad thing, ever-increasing government. And if we were talking about the Department of Motor Vehicles, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles office, or the Social Security Administration office. Maybe you've been to one of those offices recently and you've waited in line and you've gotten to the front of the line and they've said, you need this and this and this and you don't have this and this and this and you still have to go home and get it and come back and wait in line again. That kind of government increasing would not be a good thing. But when the Bible talks about the increase of his government, it's talking about the righteous, right, godly rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That will be ever increasing as it extends to every nation, every tribe and tongue and language and people. I saw a tweet recently from Dustin Bing, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, B-E-N-G-E. He's apparently a professor at Southern Seminary. He said, manger empty, cross empty, tomb empty, throne occupied for eternity. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. All the other things come to an end, but the rule and reign of Jesus will never end. And so how do we respond to this truth? The right response is to receive this Redeemer, to receive this Redeemer by faith. What does it mean to receive Jesus? In John 1, 12, it says, to all who received him, who welcomed him, who believed on his name, so who placed their trust on him and in him, he gave the right, the authority to become children of God. So to believe on Jesus is the same as receiving him. To receive him means to believe on him. They're interchangeable. It means to welcome Jesus as the greatest treasure in all of life. Like the man who found treasure hidden in a field and he covered it up and went and sold everything he had in order to buy that field. Once you recognize that Jesus is the great treasure, you welcome him by faith. You receive him and he gives you the right to become the children of God. The Bible links faith and repentance. 
But when it talks about repentance, it means turning from self-reliance, turning from other sources of light. Some here tend to be survivalists. You like to go camping and you take all the things that you might possibly need if you're out in the wilderness and you need to start a fire, you need to send an emergency signal to someone, so you might have a flint or you might have a fire starter of some sort. And those are good things when you're in the wilderness. But if we're thinking about relying on our own schemes and our own resources instead of relying on God, that is a deadly and dangerous thing to do. The prophet Jeremiah talked about this in his day, and he said, speaking on the behalf of the Lord, that my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they have hewn out or dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns which can hold no water. That's always the danger, that we will look at the darkness all around us and we'll try to figure out how to get light in this world. We'll try to make it light. We'll get out our flint or our fire starter and we'll try to start something ourselves. But God wants us to receive, to trust, to rest on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light. The light has come and yet darkness remains. But one day the door will be fully opened forever. If you received a bulletin today, you may have looked at that image on the cover. There was a, a door with a keyhole, and there's light streaming through the keyhole. That's kind of like where we're at now. The light of Jesus has come. It's shining into the world, but one day the door will be thrown wide open forever. Revelation 22, it says the gates of the city will not be shut. The Lord God will be their light. It's actually Revelation 21, its gates will never be shut. There will be no night and they will have no need of lamp or light of sun because the Lord God will be their light. God wants to be your light today and every day. And he has promised the Messiah who has come we celebrate his first advent and we await his second advent. And when God makes a promise, we can speak about it as though it's already done. In Luke 1, when Zechariah and Elizabeth are without child and the angel Gabriel appears and tells Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth will have a son, he says, in effect, I don't believe you. Prove it to me. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And because you did not believe, you'll be silent until this comes to pass. So Gabriel, or Zechariah, had nine months of silence while he waited for this son to be born. And then when his son was born, they asked, what shall we name the child? They wanted to name him after his father. And his father asked for something to write with. And he wrote on a tablet, his name is John. And then the Lord opened his mouth and he began to bless the Lord and praise the Lord. And he said that the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You might think he was talking about his own son, John the Baptist, who was just born. But John wasn't of the house of David. He was talking about Jesus. It hadn't happened yet. 
But he could speak about it as though it was done. In the same way, Isaiah speaks at the end of this passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Every promise of God you can cling to because he keeps all of his promises. You can trust that God will bring light in your darkness and you can treasure Jesus as your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, the everlasting Father, and your Prince of Peace. One day we will feast in the house of Zion. Today we have feasted at the table of the Lord, but one day we will feast and weep no more. Today our feasting is mingled with tears. Jesus has come, the kingdom has come already, and yet it's not fully here, but one day it will be. You can count on it. You can bank your hope on it. You can trust the God of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you are a God who keeps every single promise. Not one of your promises has fallen to the ground. And we pray that you would help us to trust in you, to rest in your promise. Thank you that you have sent the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into this world, and he has brought the light of life. And we pray that you would cause his light to shine more and more into us and shine through us until that day when he comes again in glory and we marvel at him. So Lord, allow your light to so fill us that it will shine forth to us or from us to a darkened world. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.